Hi, it's Saturday. It's the Saturday Show, and I am going to enjoy on this Saturday a drink from my local fast food restaurant, be it a DQ Blizzard, a Wendy's Frosty, or Friendly's, a local ice cream shop that I think no longer exists. They had a shake, and they called it the Fribble. It sort of was in keeping with the name Friendly's, which wasn't. So name yourself Friendly's, and then everyone has to call you Friendly's. There's nothing especially friendly about them. It's a little like the nobody beats the whiz school of naming something. Either you can embody that claim, and no one ever has to say it, so you don't have to call yourself that, or you can't quite live up to it, so you literally name yourself that, and everyone winds up calling it Friendly's, even though the people serving the fribbles are kind of grumpy. Now, I mentioned Wendy's, not just here, in the opening to this, the Saturday show, where we play you one from the week and one from the vault. I mentioned Wendy's for a reason, and it is because on Wednesday, I talk about Wendy's, and a pricing scheme that I think was totally kosher, even if the cheeseburger burgers are not. So enjoy that. And we shall pair that with our One from the Vault episode where I do a deep dive into Steakums. Not really the food, but the Twitter account. I really enjoyed this interview. This was a recent one. It's from August 2022, which would be an excellent time to have a Frosty or a Fribble or possibly a Blizzard. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash. Because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where I got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. On the gist, we've had on senators, congressmen, presidents, though not of America, vice presidents, though of America, Academy Award winners, Nobel Prize winners. You know what we've never had on? We've never had on a thin piece of meat. But we do today in a form. Nathan Alabach is the creative director of Alabach Communications. What does that mean to you? Well, if you've ever been on Twitter, which you probably have, and navigated your way to the Stakem account. Yes, Stakem, 
the thin strip of delicious, but probably not great for you meat, you might find that Steakum has a voice. And Steakum wades into many of the important issues of the day. And Steakum's funny. And sometimes Steakum has some back and forth with Arby's and Denny's. And what the hell is going on here? Well, to explain all of this is Nathan Alibach. Hi, welcome to The Gist. Mike, thanks for having me. It's the first time I've been uh, referred to as a piece of meat, I think. But uh, happy <laughs> That happy you for know it. of, that, <laughs> that the ladies haven't said behind your back. <laughs> that's right. I prefer, yeah, I prefer it to my face, so it's Yes, good. <laughs> that's right. It's, it's not so much that I'm objectifying you as taking on the persona of Steakum. You literally objectified or foodified yourself. Take me and the listeners through the genesis of how you got to control that Twitter account and how that Twitter account came to have the voice that it did. Yeah, that's right. I, I, I kind of, I've been calling it brand personification for a few years now. Um, some people call it brand humanization, but this whole kind of weird trend where brands on social media, they, in a way, they want to act human. They want to, you know, be relatable and, and entertaining and, and come across like they're not a corporate entity, that they're the person behind the account trying to, you know, speak one-to-one with people in a way uh so yeah through our agency like i i started running the stakeum twitter account in 2017 within the first year it went viral a few times for commentary on, on different subjects like in 2018 it went viral for uh we, we did this what's now called like the millennial thread which is just like a thread about uh like the issues that young people face and why that may lead them to interacting with a brand like Steakum on Twitter. And then it just, yeah, just continued to snowball from there. So I definitely have a lot of questions about uh, the implications of this. But first, I want to just lay some more facts. Was Steakum a client of your company and you pitched them on this? Or did they come to you in a way seeking this kind of content out? It was a really weird way this this whole thing panned out because by about July of 2017, we had uh, run up our ad budget with them for the year. So we had, we had a bunch of campaigns that were scheduled um, throughout the year and we were pretty much done by like June, July. So it just so happened to coincide with a slow period at the agency. So I had a lot of free time and in August of that year, Joe Rogan released his uh, 1,000th, I think it was, episode of his podcast where it had Joey Diaz and I think Tom Segura mm-hmm. on it. And uh, they told this story on that podcast about Steakum. Uh-huh. And people were were sending it to us being like, oh, this is crazy. Like Steakum got shouted out on this like, huge podcast. So we pitched to to the team there being like, hey, you know, we don't really have a ton of money right now to, to invest in this, but we could just jump on Twitter and see if there's there's conversations happening around this uh, podcast shout out. So that was the, the genesis of us jumping on the account. And then I had a bunch of free time, so I ran with it. I'm going to guess the fact that it was uh, Joe Rogan and knowing those two comedians, they were probably, you know, they weren't too serious. They were making jokes around Steakum. Uh, it might have been a different uh, kind of content that you put forward as the Steakum account if it was the Red Table Talk and the Smith family uh, discussing Steakum, for instance. I w- I'm guessing. Oh, absolutely. It was it was Joey Diaz talking about how Steakum like made him fart in college, and you know, just some like absurdist stories that that were that were f- hilarious. But yeah, definitely not like the you know the brand friendly type of stuff. <laughs> right. So was Steakum the brand? itself i don't know you know we don't want to be associated with uh gaseousness they were definitely there, there was more hesitation in the early stages absolutely for engaging with any of this type of stuff and it took about i would say six to eight 
months of, of us exploring on the account for them to to loosen up the guardrails, I would say. But it, sure. in the beginning, they, they just didn't take it that seriously because it was kind of like, well, who's on Twitter? You know, like Twitter is kind of like seen as a, a um, an underdog platform versus like Facebook and Instagram and YouTube. So it was kind of under the radar for a little bit. And then as it started to go viral, they started to pay attention to it and being like, ah, all right, let's, let's watch what we say here. But but once it started getting really successful, they, they, they caught on to it. Well, who's on Twitter gives you an opportunity, right? They weren't taking it too seriously. They they probably had what, like twelve thousand followers? Oh no, before? it was less than a thousand, and they were okay. totally inactive. So there was like no right. like engagement on the account, which is yeah. So unless they did something that really redounded to the brand's embarrassment, which I'm sure they were a little worried about, there was almost nothing to lose. Exactly, and that gave you an opportunity. Yep, yep, plenty of room to play around, as as I would say. Now, in finding the voice, were you familiar with the more absurdist side of Twitter? Not just on brands, but, you know, what they call weird Twitter, guys like Drill, and uh, I enjoy the work of Pixelated Boat. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, like, I, I was familiar with a couple of the accounts, but I was not familiar of how broad that ecosystem really was and, and the history of it. And that was actually, it's funny, it's funny you brought that up because it turned out when I got on this account that one of the first things I noticed was that they had blocked about 150 accounts in it. And I was like, yeah, oh, this is really weird. And I was, I was going through all these accounts and they're all associated with weird Twitter. So I tried to figure out like, what was like the history to this account? Like some, <laughs> something must have happened that was uh, that that went terribly wrong on the Stakeham. That's account. right. That's right. Stakeham has a past. <laughs> it's a, there, there's a whole, yeah, there's like this, this history of drama. There was a war at some point. <laughs> And, and uh, I went back through and, and found out that whoever was previously on the account, they got in this kind of skirmish with some weird Twitter users and started blocking them. And then uh -huh. the, the one bigger account, his, his, his handle is uh, Boner Hitler. This, sure. uh, this account um, <laughs> had a big enough following that started to kind of like rally people to harass the Stakem account for blocking it. So yeah. That started this whole kind of like, you know, effect where they were just blocking dozens and dozens and dozens of these accounts. And it got to the point where somebody actually, his name is John Hendren, he wrote an article for the uh, the forum site Something Awful about the Stakeham Twitter account. So it kind of like iconicized it in that space. So they abandoned the account and it was years later by the time that I kind of jumped on and started to reclaim it a bit. So when I got on, I unblocked all these accounts and started to interact with them and sort of uh, turned the narrative around in a way that was more like playful and, and self-aware to all those issues and kind of won over some of those uh, those folks. Right. So I have to say, in the history of advertising or brand management from, you know, the dawn of it, whenever Edward Bernays uh, first decided to lend his insight into a brand up until, I don't know, 2017, the question of what should we do in terms of engagement with Boner Hitler had a very clear answer, which is do not engage with Boner Hitler. <laughs> and then at some point, the answer was, well, maybe there is a way to do this right. Um, I guess my question isn't what changed, like the whole culture change and everything changed, but were you the first to notice that it had changed to the degree that a uh, more or less wholesome family brand associated with lunch meats and maybe school cafeterias that that brand was right and the culture had changed enough for that brand to engage with it in this way. Were you a pioneer in that regard? I wouldn't 
claim that. I mean, some people would claim that. I mean, there was definitely a few people before me prominently that 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 would the Arby's account on yes. your behalf claim that <laughs> the, I mean, the Arby's account. So Arby's years before I did this in like 2015, they were doing like anime references and gamer references. So they were pretty attuned to some of like the Twitter culture stuff. And the other the big one that everybody points to is Denny's. Uh, they had a yes. the, Denny's diner had a Tumblr account in 2013 that then translated to some stuff on Twitter. So that was very esoteric and, and engaged with um, like online gamer Tumblr culture, which is very uh, extremely online, as I would say. Like e- even you referring to the, the weird Twitter stuff, I mean, for people who don't know, weird Twitter comes from this kind of like early internet culture of, of forum users on sites like Something Awful, where it was, it was back when it was, the internet was still the Wild West. So to give listeners context, I mean... The 4chan as a website actually came from something awful. Um, the the founder of 4chan used to be a forum user on something awful. And he was booted from the from the platform, and then he went on to start his own thing, which was 4chan. So if you can imagine it, like back then, but it, it wasn't really as evil as 4chan has become. Yeah, no, exactly. It was it was a lot it was a lot more edgy and and trolly, but there was less um it was less integrated with mainstream culture the way it is today. Right. Like, and there wasn't the assumption that it could ever be. You know, these were people talking to themselves and they knew it. Yes, these were like like very tech oriented people in a time where there weren't that many tech oriented people. So it's like a lot of like programmers, web developers, like people that were there's their jobs were to be online in like the nineties and the early two thousands. So this was like before nerd culture was popular. So was there a big hit? Was there uh, a post that you were so deluged with reaction it couldn't be ignored anymore? The, well, the first moment that, that had its kind of viral uh, moment in the sun was the, the, the hashtag verify Stakem campaign, which was the sort of uh, punching up grassroots thing that we were doing through the account where it started off just as a joke because Stakem's account had no followers and it didn't have a blue check mark and it was at the time in 2017 when um when Twitter was under some some fire because they had verified uh Richard Spencer's Twitter account the mm-hmm. the white nationalist so that was our rallying cry it was like you know Twitter will verify Nazis but they won't verify this this meat brand that's been around since the 70s so we kind of yeah. ran with that as a joke, and then it started to unironically pick up steam and eventually got us like thousands of followers. And it must have been a slow news day when it went viral, but um, we ended up getting verified in January of 2018. And like AP News picked it up, and then the New York Times aggregated it from there, and then the USA Today did a story on it. It became this like huge story that we were kind of like totally thrown back by. We did not know it was going to uh, take off the way it did. And um, that was the moment that everybody internally was like, all right, we got to start taking this account seriously. (laughs) Somewhere along the line, it stopped being ironic and it, you, uh, started being earnest and taking some stances and not stances in terms of this senator bad, this senator good, but trying to make, again, I'll return to the word earnest points about thinking or earnest points about decision making um well a few questions about that tell me about if you could the genesis of that 
And if you think that helped the brand or was that more an expression of, because I've seen some of your writings outside the brand, just an expre- putting more of yourself into the tw- uh, Stakeham Twitter account. It was, it was definitely both. Um, I felt that, yeah, like you said, it's, uh, earlier on, I think a lot of the draw to the brand was the more absurdist style content. But then as we went, we started making this kind of like funny commentary about current events. And then we started to get these replies from people that were like, oh, Stakeham should run for president. You know, like, why isn't why isn't Stakeham one of our leaders in this type of thing? So we started to... Like, you'd really want to elect a 35-year-old piece of meat, but anyway. (laughs) Exactly. Some people do, I guess. Um, (laughs) But we started to play into that then to be like, all right, you know, people want to hear more commentary on, like, current events or whatever. So we just started to play with that a little bit. And then eventually that led to, like I mentioned earlier, the kind of big... Uh, thread we did at the end of um, 2018, which was this kind of commentary on millennial angst and all the issues that younger people are facing and how that leads to a lot of weird outcomes, one of which being many millennials engaging with this frozen meat brand on Twitter, like sending, for example, like a lot of these kids would send these uh, really long, um, sincere messages to the account asking for life advice we had we got messages from like kids talking about having eating disorders, having abusive parents, like being broke and like getting kicked out of their houses, just like really just like vulnerable random stuff that we you know we had no place to really uh, comment on. And it was the situation where it was like, man, I mean, if these kids are are thinking like the only place they have to turn is is a frozen meat brand, that's not that doesn't say a lot of uh, a great stuff about where where we're at uh, societally. So we wanted just to kind of speak to that. And that really resonated. And you would acknowledge that every, you know, eight tweets or anything like, don't listen to me. I'm just a frozen piece of meat. That was a huge part of it. Yeah. Like this, the self-awareness of just being like, you know, I mean, just remember that this is coming from a company. The company wants to sell you something. You're never really shying away from the fact that the goal ultimately was, you know, sales and awareness. And I think people took it, it had this kind of anti-marketing effect where then it, it, it actually lowered people's guards further to be like, oh, we can trust this brand because this brand is telling us what it's doing. So that was an interesting part of it. So you're not running the Stakeham Twitter account now, but are they still a client? No, no. We uh, we stopped working with them. I think officially the contract ran out last December. So you, you set it in place and wherever they want to take it now. I don't know. It's a little like when Steve Carell left the office. Or maybe it's more like when David Lee Roth left Van Halen. Yeah, I mean, it, it could be. It's, it's to be determined, I guess. We'll see. Like, it's, it's, they've tried some different stuff while still trying to maintain some of the tone since, since I left. When you pass something off like that, you have to give people room to do their own thing with it. And whether that works or not, I guess we'll, we'll see. Yeah, or maybe you'll uh, come over the top subtweeting them as White Castle, calling them, <laughs> calling them out, dunking on them. Who knows? Yeah, right. It's all possible. That'd be the most meta thing ever if like, I came through another brand and was like, this is the Stakeham guy through this other brand now. Like, come over. I got it. I got it perfectly. <laughs> You're Del Monte ketchup and you're refusing to be put on a Stakeham. <laughs> <laughs> it can't be Heinz, right? It has to be Hunter Del Monte. That's right. We got we got to punch up. That's 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 the name of the game, so. <laughs> Nathan Alabach is the creative director of Alabach Communications. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for chatting, Mike. It was fun.
And now the spiel, a popular fast food chain, is considering a new pricing scheme. Here is Fox News 11 with details. In the mood for Wendy's? I am not, thus ending our coverage. The gist was produced by Corey Wara. Quite Mallard's was, okay, okay, okay. I was just a hook. Sometimes lesser communicators than I will throw out the hook to get you interested in the lead. I don't want a Wendy's fast food burger, but I do want you to hear the stories of Wendy's fast food burgers and what they're doing about their prices of fast food burgers. I'm going to deny Fox News 11. Let's turn to Pittsburgh station, KDK and John Delano with a pleasantly lilting take on the topic. Suppose you are standing in line at your favorite fast food restaurant to buy a $5 hamburger. But when you get to the kiosk or cashier, the price on the menu changes to $6. Economists call it dynamic or surge pricing. And Wendy's CEO, Kirk Tanner, has just announced his fast food chain wants to adjust food prices throughout the day. I totally grasp and understand the concept, but there was one element in most of the coverage of Wendy's dynamic pricing that Fox 11 does provide. And so I will play that whole clip, a uh, warning or note for listeners. The clip starts with a rhetorical question. Some people get freaked out by answering it earnestly. We ask your forbearance. In the mood for Wendy's, prices are about to fluctuate depending on the time of day. Burger Chain announced it will test a surge pricing model where costs seesaw throughout the day based on demand. For example, the price of a Dave's burger could cost up to a dollar more during the lunchtime rush, but could go down a buck after 2 p.m. Uber uses a similar surge pricing model. Wendy's will launch theirs next year. So there's the Uber reference, without which we couldn't possibly understand the concept of supply and demand. No, really, I don't think we could understand it. It was in and prominent in so much coverage, I said to myself, I guess Americans don't understand supply and demand. I mean, just think about the melodic hypothetical out of Pittsburgh. Imagine a burger increasing in price. Sure, but what if you're online and then your burger decreases in price? Because that'll happen after 2 p.m. Or based on this and the front page of newspapers saying can't believe Wendy's is raising prices part of the day. What if Wendy's just announced we are raising all of our prices, wouldn't make the front page, but then they said, however, because we love you guys, after 2 p.m., we're going to keep the same Wendy's low, low prices. They would be hailed as heroes when they weren't assailed as cow slaughtering capitalists. Yes, sure. Uber charges more during in-demand periods as do hotels, sporting events, nightclubs, every commodity, unionized workers, Midtown Manhattan, every bar not during happy hour, the non-happy hours, or as I call them, the joyless junctures. So many things. Why not fast food? I failed to see how it's different. I failed to see how it's wrong. It just seems a little unusual, slightly unusual. Then again, I might be a bad guy to judge. I am more than slightly unusual. The other day, I went to pick my sister up from the airport. I was parked for about nine minutes on the way out. The charge for parking, $4.75. Should have been incensed. But what I did, I, I said to myself, you know, this was like five years ago. And now we're charged $3.98. I said, nah, that's not so bad. But you know, $3.98 five years ago with inflation is about $5.475 today. So it's kind of a bargain. Let me tell you, no one but me in America thinks like this. There has, relating back to the Wendy's burger search, there's never been a more surmountable problem. 
A lunchtime fast food burger is an extremely elastic item. I'm not talking about meat quality. I'm talking about economics. It's a replaceable item. You don't like Wendy's? Go to Burger King. The prices are higher at Burger King? Yes, but the truly important thing is the prices never change throughout the day. What if they change to be lower? No, we're apparently against changed prices. No, actually, we're okay when they change when they're lower. But they change when they're lower. That means at other times they're higher. And then we could do the, oh my God, I can't believe Wendy's is charging more for a burger at some times. Thing. Game. Spiel, as it were. This is a fun story to ruminate about. This is a fun story. In fact, this is why the Planet Money Indicator exists. And here's what the Planet Money Indicator is going to sound like. I checked today. It wasn't today. It's got to be tomorrow, right? They'll set the scene. They'll be inside. The two hosts will be inside a Wendy's. I'm going to fake that sensation here. And one host will turn to the other and they'll ask each other questions. I'm going to play both parts in tomorrow's Planet Money Indicator. I assume the algorithm predicts. Hey, Darren, how much is that burger? Well, Wylan, it's $2. No, wait, the clock struck 12. It's $3 now. What's going on? I'm sorry, that's a terrible accent, and I'm really degrading the excellent host of the Planet Money Indicator. Oh, the other host will say, well, actually, we're here with an economist to explain. And explain they will, because apparently people have to be led through the idea of supply and demand, and that businesses have really done this all the time, and it's no worse than charging for anything else that has a profit margin built in. Some things are lost leaders. Sometimes you got to get the money where the money is there for the getting. So all of this, all of this huge sea change, which as I've demonstrated is only slightly, slightly different from everything that we've ever come to expect means that the TikTok teens are here to tear it apart. Okay, what in the French fried fuck Wendy's? Now I have to plan out my day? Oh, it's, well, it's 10 a.m. I mean, it shouldn't be that busy. Oh, it's 12, can't go to Wendy's. I'm not gonna go to Wendy's. Wendy's, you're fast food, you're not good food. You're forgetting your place, okay? Fast food used to be cheap, okay? You got me all steamed up and I'm supposed to go back to bed. A shitty hamburger should not be more expensive any time of day. Yo, uh, fast food places that are thinking about doing surge prices, I got some news for you. Fast food places in general, y'all better watch your goddamn ass. And I have been saying this for a very long time now, but they better watch their goddamn ass. Wendy's, what the fuck? My God, my God. Excellent points, TikTok teens. You'd imagine Dave Thomas is spinning in his bacon-induced grave. In fact, and in reality, I endorse this Uber-style pricing, also known as this Red Roof Inn-style pricing, this Manhattan South of Central Park after 5 a.m.-style pricing. The only problem I foresee with Wendy's doing this is all the cars that'll begin to idle outside the drive-thru at 1.55 p.m. or patrons loitering in the waiting area to time their orders for the 2 p.m. price drop. But you know what? When that happens, there's going to be a patron at like 1.58 who says, screw it, it's worth the two extra dollars to be able to jump this line of these 12 other cheapskates and get my burger. And guess what? When that happens, Wendy's will be the first company to embrace theme park style premium fast passes, which will lead to more coverage, more backlash, more TikTok teens, and another special Planet Money Indicator episode on the Wendy's Fast Pass, revolutionizing the dining industry, just like the Wendy-style Surge Burgers revolutionized food way back in 2024. Joel Patterson, he's the senior producer of The Gist, 
Corey Wara. He's the producer of The Gist. And they are called the Quaint Mallards. We will tell you why perhaps on Monday.